You know, I remember being in Sunday school and learning about Jonah and only remembering the big fish. Well, let me tell you, the story of Jonah is much more than a story about a fish. In fact, it's not really about the fish at all. It's not about a whale. So get those Sunday school ideas out of your head. The story of Jonah is bigger than that. So if you're in the book of Jonah, I hope you're there. If you don't have a Bible with you, please look under the seats. There's Bible strategically placed. Jonah is amongst the minor prophets. It's in the Old Testament. What if I told you that Jonah holds the greatest revival recorded in Scripture, the worst evangelist in history, (laughs) Jonah, is used by God to ignite one of the greatest revivals in history. What if I told you that Jonah is one of the most honest and relatable characters in the Bible? Jonah wears his heart on his sleeve. I guess it's the curse of being a Bible teacher or a prophet. You say what you're thinking. It could be used for good and also to reveal your heart. In fact, Jonah looks so bad in this book, some say he didn't write it. Some say he couldn't have even been a Christian. But I think that was actually part of Jonah's strategy. He's a prophet that we can relate to. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior. And we're a lot more like Jonah than maybe we let off to be. What if I told you also that Jonah is one of the greatest displays of God's steadfast love in the Bible? His love, the love of God, is persistent in Jonah. It's unrelenting. Really, the the theme of Jonah, you might ask, what's the point of all this? I'd like to point your attention to Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. So you're open to Jonah. Look at Jonah 2, verse 9. The theme of Jonah is in his prayer in the belly of the fish. It's that last sentence in verse 9. Here it is. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the theme of Jonah. God saves. Salvation comes from him and it is to him. The glory and the credit goes to God, and God will save whomever He wants, whenever He wants, and wherever He wants. God saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So with that theme in mind, we approach the text of Jonah. And there's so much for us to learn here. Jonah is so good for us. It teaches us today. First of all, Jonah teaches us to obey. No matter the call, no matter the command, we must obey God's word. Jonah teaches us to repent. What is repentance? We are going to learn what repentance looks like in the Ninevites and also in Jonah's life. Jonah teaches us to evangelize. It's not up to the tricks of the messenger, the eloquence of speech from the preacher Just be faithful to share the message and watch the Lord work. That's what happened in Jonah. Jonah teaches us to never say never. 
You might think that some people are just beyond God's reach. Oh, they're so bad. They're so sinful. They're so rebellious. They'll never be saved. No, never say never. We're going to see in the book of Jonah that no sinner is past the reach of God's mercy. Jonah teaches us to be honest about our sin. We relate to Jonah, or maybe you relate to Nineveh. But Jonah and Nineveh, they both wear their sin on their sleeve. Jonah says out of his mouth what's in his heart, the sinfulness in his heart. Nineveh, by their reputation, they were bad people. Yet we see God, again, steadfast in love, who saves them. And so it's good for us to be honest and confess our sin as we relate to Jonah. Finally, Jonah teaches us the heart of God. Really, the story of Jonah is not about Jonah. It's about the Lord who saves. And we see God's heart beat red in Jonah. We, we can feel his pulse despite a prophet's disobedience, despite a nation's rampant wickedness. God bleeds mercy. He bleeds grace. He bleeds love. He's patient. He's kind. Steadfast love endures forever. Christian, I pray that you will walk away from the book of Jonah more in love with God as you see his incredible love for you. And if you're not a Christian here today, I believe that Jonah's ministry is not yet finished. In fact, we can read this book, see a God of salvation, and you can be saved through the preaching of God's word. If you would receive the gospel, repent from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. So there's so much for us in this book of Jonah. I'm excited to walk through it chapter by chapter. There are four chapters in the book. It's pretty short. And so one message per chapter, and we'll go all the way through it. Chapter one today, and I've titled the chapter, Running. Running. There are three big characters in this chapter and four main actions that we see take place. I, I really want to encourage you to be on, at church on time because our scripture reading, we are going to be going through the book of Jonah simultaneously as I preach it. And so to, for you to hear the whole chapter read sequentially, you've got to come on time and hear the scripture reading uh, each Sunday morning. But we see at the very beginning of the chapter, chapter 1, your first point in your outline, I, I hope you grabbed one of these on the way in, or you're given one of these. The first point is that God calls. God calls. You see in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, because of the fish, a lot of scholars discount the book of Jonah. They say it is not a historical account. It's a myth. It's a fable. Because how can a man live in the belly of a fish three days and three nights? And so scholars will discount the book as non-historical. And we'll talk about the fish next week when we get into that section of the story. But you have to understand, there are far greater miracles in the book of Jonah than a man surviving in a fish. In fact, there are far greater miracles throughout the rest of Scripture like, how about Jesus raising people from the dead? How about Jesus himself being raised from the dead? So if you have a problem with miracles, then you have bigger fish to fry. No pun intended. 
But we have evidence in this first verse that this is actually a historical account. Jonah, the son of Amittai, is a historical figure. And we know that because he's referenced in the historical account of 2 Kings. 2 Kings is a book, another book in the Bible that gives the historical account of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. And Jonah's mentioned, you see in, I believe it's verse 25. You just have it there on your outline. He, this, this is talking about Jeroboam. You go back to verse 23. Jeroboam, the king of Israel, restored the border of Israel from Labohamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, who? Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Now, this is helpful. We put Jonah in a historical place during history, during this time period, under the reign of Jeroboam. Now, actually, the historical context behind Jonah is helpful as you approach the book. We've got to understand what's going on during this time frame so we can better understand why Jonah does what he does. So the, the events that take place in Jonah are, take place during the 8th century B.C., this is between the years of approximately 800 to 750 B.C. This is under the reign of Jeroboam II. We see that in 2 Kings uh, chapter 14, verse 23. Now, you have to understand this time, Israel is a divided kingdom. You have the ten tribes in the north called Israel, and then you have two tribes in the south called Judah. And so, Jeroboam was a king of the northern tribes, Israel. And so uh, Joseph, a prophet, or sorry, Jonah, a prophet, was from that region as well. Now we see from the account in 2 Kings that Jeroboam was a bad king. He was a bad king. He did not honor or worship Yahweh. Yet, under his reign, the borders of Israel are expanding. So it seems as though he's successful. Jonah was the one, according to 2 Kings 14, who spoke the word of the Lord through the expansion. It appears as though Jonah is a successful prophet as well. Let me tell you something. Kings love prophets who preach blessing. They want the ear tickler in the throne room, the one who's saying, hey, you're doing really well. Good job. It seems as though Jonah was that prophet. He was the successful prophet. He preached blessing. There were others who preached curse and judgment. Contemporaries of Jonah. You might be familiar with them. You have Amos and Hosea. Amos, Amos and Hosea, two other minor prophets, wrote during the same time Jonah lived. And they wrote to the same group of people. They wrote to the people of Israel. And both of them preached judgment on the people of Israel. Because even though economically they are rising, morally they are declining. Amos writes of the injustice in Israel. They're selling people into slavery. They oppress and afflict the poor. They're getting drunk with wine from their vineyards. Hosea says they worship false gods. Amos preaches a message of coming judgment. In fact, Amos tells them where they are going 
to go and how they, the judgment will come. He says in Amos chapter 5, verse 27, he says, I, the Lord says, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. Judgment's coming and you're going to be sent into exile beyond Damascus because of your sin. Now, this is significant. Hosea writes a similar thing. Where is Damascus in relation to Israel? I have a map to show you. So you have that little green spot, that's Judah. Just north of it, the Samaria region, that is the northern kingdom of Israel. And you'll see Damascus is where? Directly northeast of Israel. Now what's the big purple blob beyond Damascus? It's Assyria. It's Assyria. This is the rising Assyrian Empire. This is significant. Significant historical context of the book of Jonah. Assyria is on the rise. The Assyrian Empire from around the years 800 BC to 600 BC is the most powerful empire in all of the world. So, what is Amos telling us? What is Hosea saying to the people of Israel? You will go into exile and you'll be taken into exile by who? The Assyrians. That's significant. Remember that. Put that away. So both of these prophets preach judgment on the moral decline of Israel and say, you're going to go into exile into Assyria. Now let's go back to Jonah. Jonah, what is God's call to Jonah? Look at verse 2. Arise, go to where? Nineveh. Now where's Nineveh? Let's go back to the map. Go back there. You see that bold font, Nineveh, the heart of the Assyrian Empire. In fact, Nineveh is its capital. Arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh. By the way, that empire that Hosea and Amos says we are going to be exiles to, that's going to judge the people of Israel, go to hostile enemy territory and call out against it. That's a steep call. Now, who are the Assyrians? Let's, let's understand these people of Nineveh. If I could describe them in one word, the Assyrians are ruthless. They're ruthless. If you visit the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, you can see an exhibit dedicated to the Assyrian Empire. You can also look it up online. There are these stones in the exhibit called reliefs, and on these stones there are engraved images, scenes from the Assyrian Empire. And you know what's on every single one of these stones? Images of violence. Assyrian kings with their enemy's head on a platter. Piles of dead bodies at the feet of their thrones. Foreign rulers bowing down to the kings, and then there's a soldier behind them ready to take their life. Brutal stuff. And these stones were in the city of Nineveh, Nimrod, to intimidate foreigners. If you come to their city, you see all these incredible acts of violence that the Assyrians have done, and hopefully you're intimidating. That was their, that was their goal. They were known for their violence, notoriously brutal, ruthless, and wicked. In fact, you see in the text, God says, 
call out against them, for their evil has come up before me. God says, I noticed. The smoke of Assyria's wickedness had reached his nostrils. And now he's paying attention. And he's going to stop it. I mean, this might, if I'm looking for a modern day equivalent to this call, it might be the equivalent of the modern day Taliban with the military and economic power of China. I mean, put yourself in Noah's shoe, or jo- Jonah's shoes. Imagine the Lord comes to you and says, I want you to go to Kabul. And I want you to call out against them, for the Taliban's wickedness has come up to my nostrils. What would you do? I'm sure most of us, and I'm speaking for myself, might do exactly what Jonah did. What did Jonah do? God calls, that's point number one, Jonah runs. That's second point. Jonah runs. Look at verse three. God's call is clear. This is what I want you to do. This is where I want you to go. But, and then you come to verse 3, but Jonah. Uh-oh. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Wrong way. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of of the Lord. Where is Tarshish? I have another map. That's far away, isn't it? Now, what's interesting is Gath Heifer is just northeast of Joppa. So, from Gath Heifer, Nineveh is northeast. From Gath Heifer to Joppa, Joppa, it's southwest. And then Tarshish is even further west. Jonah went in exactly the opposite direction of where God wanted him to go. That's what, it's a great picture and illustration of disobedience. Sin. Sin, disobedience, is direct defiance of God's word. It's going in the opposite direction of what God is calling us or commanding us to do. That's what sin is. It's breaking God's law. Jonah is a great illustration of that. But more than that, understand this, more than that, the author wants us to see something here. The author emphasizes something three times. You may have seen it twice in verse 3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from where? From the presence of the Lord. Later in verse 3, away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 10, he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Disobedience always leads us away from God. What does it mean that he was running from the presence of the Lord? Surely Jonah would have known the Psalms. He's a prophet. The Psalms were recited and sung. He would know Psalm 139, which says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. 
If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. So can anybody ever really flee the presence of God? No. No, and I believe Jonah knew that. He knew God was omnipresent, which is all present. So what does it mean that he was fleeing from the presence of God? This is a striking illustration. It helps us to understand that Jonah wasn't just breaking God's law. He was breaking relationship. Jonah was running away from his relationship with God. His face, his presence, his favor, he was running away from his will. Running away from relationship. Obedience results in closeness for the child of God. Disobedience results in distance. Relational distance. This was not just breaking God's law, but breaking his heart. And I'll often describe sin that way. I think we think of sin as just kind of this impersonal, transactional, oh, I sinned, so I broke God's law. No, no, sin, disobedience is not just breaking God's law. It breaks his heart. There are personal, relational ramifications. Disobedience affects our relationship. This was defiant and deliberate disobedience. Lord, you want me to go that way? Well, I'm going this way. Here's my letter of resignation from my position as prophet. I'm leaving Israel. My land, my people, my heritage, my religion, and my God. I'm going to start a new life in a foreign land as far as I can get away from what you want me to do. Wow. This is severe. Why does Jonah take such drastic measures? Why didn't he just respond and say, God, can you give me a different option? Can we compromise here? Can I go to Damascus? Maybe not all the way to Nineveh? No, defiantly runs. Have you been there? Have you been there? Can you relate to Jonah? Has there been a time in your life when you've just been running or you were running from God? You knew exactly what God wanted you to do, but you did the exact opposite. I think we've all been there. God's word is really clear. There are clear commands in Scripture that, honestly, we break every day. Do not be proud. Do not be angry. Do not lust after someone who isn't your spouse. Don't covet your neighbor's possessions. Don't lie to one another. Do not walk in darkness. Do not slander or gossip. Just like Jonah, we have a conscience. We know better, and we are no better than Jonah. This part of the story is a great illustration of what disobedience and sin is and where it leaves you. Disobedience is, run, is running away from God's word and, and running away from relationship with God. There's relational effects. Disobedience also leaves you desperate and hopeless. One commentator makes this interesting observation. 
he notes, Jonah paid the fare to Tarshish. That's a lot of money. Going all the way across the Mediterranean. He never got to Tarshish. He wasn't reimbursed. He lost all his money. And the commentator writes this. It's interesting. This is the way of sin. You always pay the fare and you never get to where you're going. But the way of God is exactly the opposite. He pays the fare. And surely you will arrive at your destination. Let me say that again. This is the way of sin. You always pay the fare. And you never get to where you are going. It'll never make you happy. It'll never satisfy you. It'll cost you everything. But understand this. The way of God is exactly the opposite. He pays the fare. And he makes sure you arrive at your destination. All of us like Jonah have disobeyed God. We've all sinned against God. Defiantly. We all need a savior. But thanks be to God. Understand this. Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross. He paid our fare. He made an atoning sacrifice for sin. He rose again from the dead. And sinner, turn from your wicked way and believe in him today for salvation. Don't run as far as Jonah in your sin. How far was Jonah willing to go in his disobedience? Well, he was willing to go to death. The sailors find out that Jonah is running from God, we see in the story. He's the reason that the storm is hitting their boat. And they ask him, Jonah chapter 1, verse 11, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? What could Jonah have said in that moment? He could have said, I've sinned. Turn the boat around. I need to go back to Nineveh. I need to do what God asked me to do. I repent. But he didn't say that. What did Jonah say? Verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. In other words, kill me. I'd rather die than obey. Wow. I mean, the sailors knew it would be murder. And these guys, at least they have a moral backbone. They're like, nah, we're going to try to get back. We're going to try to turn this thing around ourselves. So they tried to. But we see in verse 13, it didn't work. The storm got worse. Why? Because even though the boat turned, Jonah's heart hadn't. It was stubborn and dead set on disobedience. I can just hear Jonah's prayer because I've been there. He was just praying, Lord, let me go. Let me go. Have you been there? So stubborn in your sin, in your anger, in your resentment and bitterness, wanting to sin so badly that you said in your heart, Lord, just let me go. Let me have it. I know what I need to do, but I don't want to do it. This is low. He was willing to die instead of repent. But he's not yet at rock bottom. He gets to rock bottom in chapter 2. He describes it, and we'll get there. 
what would you do with Jonah? If you're God, what would you do with him? This is how low the prophet's gone. He's willing to die instead of obey God. Are you going to let him go? Would you? He's done, God. (laughs) He's deliberately disobeyed you. He's run so far. Don't you have other prophets you could use? Try Amos. I bet he'd go to Nineveh or Hosea. I bet he'd go. Raise up another prophet. This is a worthless prophet. Disobeying God, resigning his office, and going as far as he can from God's will. What would you do to Jonah? What does God do when his child runs? Look back at verse 3 and then 4. But Jonah, what did he do? He ran. He fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. It's clear he wants to get away. And look at verse 4, these words. But the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break it up. Ready or not, Jonah, here he comes. The prophet runs, point number three, God pursues. God pursues. But the Lord, and then we see from here the events change course. A different person takes control. Jonah tried to take control. He tried to run and get out of there. And then the sailors tried to take control. They're like, we're going to turn this ship around and go back. Finally, we see the Lord just take the reins and he holds them. He takes control of the situation. He hurls a storm to stop the ship. The sailors cast lot to see whose fault it is. God controls the lots and they point to Jonah. What should we do? The sailors say, Jonah says, ah, I still know how we can both win. Win-win. You guys can go off free. The storm will quiet down if you just kill me by throwing me in the ocean. But that didn't work. Why? Because finally when they threw Jonah overboard, what happened? Well, then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, to pick him up. This guy could not get away from God. I think we look at the storm that hits us in life. We look at, you know, being caught, being found out in our sin as a bad thing. Maybe the trial or the test is just really hard and difficult. But don't you see that this is the kindness of God? The storm is an act of mercy. The fish was salvation for Jonah. This is God's unrelenting, pursuing love. For one of his children. I think of Hebrews 12, 6. This is just amazing. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. God won't let him go. And he'll use any means necessary. A storm. Lots. Even a fish. To drag Jonah back. I was just reflecting, I was going through this chapter. Can you think of people, circumstances or events God used you to stop you in your sin? Think back to your testimony. The people God used to draw you back to himself, the events. 
And you know, maybe at that time, correction really hurt. It was embarrassing. Or the trial was difficult. Rock bottom is painful. Yet it's bittersweet because God used that to lead you to repentance. To draw you to himself. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I can think of a handful of times in my life. I was just reflecting my testimony. The times that I wanted sin so badly. I wanted to hide my sin so badly. In my heart I was saying, just Lord let me go. Let me have it. And he wouldn't. He wouldn't. I think of the time my mother caught me in sin. I think of the time a teammate called me out as a hypocrite. I think of the time when I saw my sin affect all the relationships that were important to me at the end of my senior year. And God used all those things to draw me to himself. Yes, it was embarrassing to be caught in sin. Oh, yes, it hurt. Dealing with the consequences of my sin. But praise God, that was his kindness. That prevented me from going any further. Think back in your life, Christian. Are you thankful for God's kindness, even when it hurts, that drew you to repentance? The storm is not judgment. The fish is not judgment. This is God's kindness. You know what judgment would have been for Jonah? You know what judgment would have been? If God just let him go. Here's judgment for Jonah. A long, happy, healthy life in Tarshish. You know why? Because what comes after that life? Death. And what comes after death? Judgment. God's kindness used whatever means necessary to draw Jonah back into his will. Judgment would have been letting him go. The book of Jonah is important to mention this. This is not a license to sin or a license to run. Well, Jonah ran and God chased him. So that means I can do whatever I want and God's going to come after me. Romans chapter 2 speaks directly against this. Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But, verse 5, if you don't repent, if there's no repentance, look at verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent or unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If there's no repentance in your life, if there's no turning, that's a bad thing. But obviously, a genuine salvation, a genuine faith will always lead to repentance. God's kindness, that draws us to repentance. I would be very weary if you're able to just get away with your sin. I'd be very weary when you're able to run, never get caught. Because the Lord disciplines and chastises those whom he loves. He's going to call you to repentance. If he's not, I wonder if you're his child. God's kindness is just unrelenting in Jonah. 
There's one more character in this chapter. Maybe we read over, or they're often overlooked, and what happens to them is remarkable. It reinforces the theme of the book. Number four, mariners worship. Mariners worship. Did you miss this part? Let's read 14 to 16. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, and they use the word Yahweh there. Yahweh is the Hebrew, the Israel's title for God. O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. They're quoting Psalm 115.3. The Lord sits in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. God had a different taxi to pick Jonah up. It's a fish. But look at verse 16. What do they do? Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and they made vows. These superstitious, pagan, polytheists at the end of this chapter vow their knee to worship the one true God of Israel. It's like, it's amazing. The Lord is working in Jonah's life, drawing him back to himself, and just goes, and I'm going to save these mariners too. He saves whoever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants. See, at the beginning of the chapter, their, their transformation is unbelievable. You see each mariner calling out to his own God in verse 5. In verse 14, all the mariners call out to one God, Yahweh. In verse 5, they're just afraid. It says that the, the sea made them afraid. And then in verse 10, they were, what, exceedingly afraid when they knew that Yahweh was behind the storm. In verse 5 and 10, they're afraid of a storm. And in verse 15, who do they fear? 16, sorry. They fear God himself. In a matter of minutes, maybe an hour, these men come to saving faith, evidenced by their fear of God and their worship of him. Their sacrifices to him and their commitments, their vows to obedience. They're gripped by the power, the sovereignty, and deliverance of God. Just shown in evidence in creation. You remember the theme of the book again? Salvation belongs to who? The Lord. And he starts in chapter 1. We haven't even got to Nineveh yet. And the Lord is saving people. It's amazing. Psalm 115.3, I quoted this already. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. You know, Jonah points forward to a coming salvation or a means of salvation, the means of salvation, Jesus Christ, the ultimate deliverer. And Jonah also points forward to a future salvation of the Gentiles, that the gospel is not just for the people of Israel, the Hebrews, but it is for the nations. We see these mariners from going back and forth from Tarshish. It's pretty evident by the way they're worshiping. They're polytheists. They're, they're probably not Jews, Gentiles. The Ninevites are definitely not Jews. They are Gentiles of Assyria. And so we see little 
types points forward to a future salvation that comes to people like us. People of Asian descent, European descent, African descent, the nations. And this is part of God's unfolding plan, the mystery that's revealed. We see in Romans chapter 9, verse 18, says something similar. Romans 9, 18, here it is. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from who? The Gentiles. Why didn't God stop Jonah right away? Right when he started heading down to Joppa, why didn't the Lord just stop him in his tracks there? Why didn't he make his wagon fall over, or, I don't know, trip on a rock? Why go to such great lengths? Why, you know, did Jonah have to pay the fare, get in the boat, set sail? You might say, oh, because Jonah had to get to rock bottom. I'd say, I think it was to save these sailors. Both could be true. God definitely had a plan and his sovereignty chose to save these men. Men who thought they were just going from Joppa to Tarshish. Wow. God set his steadfast love upon them. And we praise God for being a God who saves whomever he wishes. Romans 11. Just a, a response to the incredible wisdom of God and his his sovereignty and salvation, Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, the Lord is not done with Jonah, and he's not done saving. There's more to come in the book of Jonah. Just some concluding questions of reflection. Have you experienced the unrelenting love of God? Have you repented from your sin and bowed the knee to Jesus Christ? Have you embraced the only Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate way of deliverance and place saving faith in him and him alone. I hope you have. And if you have, I hope that you are overwhelmed and just thankful and grateful for God's unrelenting, steadfast love that he's shown toward you. Even the means of kindness that hurt, that drew you to repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your steadfast love endures forever. We amen that because we've experienced it, those who are truly your children. Lord, every single one of us, like sheep, we've gone astray. In our own way, we've pursued sin. We've disobeyed you. We relate to Jonah in that way. We know the consequences of our sin. It's not just a broken rule book, but we've 
we've transgressed in our relationship with you. Disobedience affects our relationship with you. Lord, even for believers who are walking in disobedience, it affects the relationship. We may be saved, we may be secure, but there's this sense of not being close with you. I pray for believers here that are walking in disobedience, that they would repent and return to you, Lord. You would use whatever means necessary to draw them back. I pray for those who are walking in disobedience and, and don't have saving faith. I pray that you would grant them saving faith and, and draw them again by any means necessary. Your kindness would lead to their repentance. And for all of us who know your love, who, who worship you, God, and have experienced this saving grace and mercy, that we would always exalt you and thank you forever for loving sinners like us, disobedient, wretched. Thank you, Lord. Your kindness is truly overwhelming. In Jesus' name.